Welcome to, I've no idea what episode this is again, by Damien and John here today. Uh, we had a fantastic guest uh, on with us uh, this afternoon, Phil Kearney, uh, or Dr. Phil Kearney, uh, I should uh, correct myself. Um, we discussed um, pretty much everything from the basics of coaching, uh, the, the master's course that he is running and so much more in between, uh, including philosophies and coaching. I, for one, was more than happy to just sit here as a fly on the wall and soak up the information. Murph, how did you find today's chat? I just found it so interesting, like breaking down what is coaching, because we often have so many misconceptions that a good coach is someone who can motivate players or is really good at picking a team, whereas realistically, the key behaviours of effective coaches is quite different from that, and we dug into it. Um, Phil runs the Masters programme in coaching in UL. He also lectures on the Sports Performance Masters, among a few other things. He was also one of the founders of Movement and Skill Acquisition Ireland, along with um, Alan Dunton, who we had on there a few months back now. I think Ed Cockland is involved there, along with a few others internationally, and he was saying how they're, they're going to get going again now, because obviously they couldn't have a conference with all the restrictions and and all like that. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's exciting to to see what is hopefully or potentially coming through that group uh, going forward. But as for today's episode, um, I would recommend uh, listening with a notebook, listening with an open mind, and uh, just uh, coming in here hoping to to learn something because I know I took a lot from today's uh, today's conversation. So without further ado, here is Dr. Phil Kearney. So Phil, lecturing in UL, currently leading the coach in MSC in UL, and did that originally kind of branch out from the Sports Performance Masters where you had a coaching module there or whereabouts did it all start off? So I think it came from an ambition that Giles Warrington had for quite a while. So uh, Giles would have been talking to Dave Passmore in DCU and other people around Ireland in general. And he would have seen that while lots of national governing bodies were offering coach development courses for, um, say, novice coaches, certainly, and intermediate coaches, there was maybe a gap around coaches who were looking to push at the higher end. So they'd gotten their experience levels, but... Uh, th- th- there was a need to provide a little bit more advanced coach education and so uh, Giles then worked with, with Tom Cummins here at UL to design uh, this master's programme which is is geared towards coaches who are very experienced, who've picked up their national governing body qualifications, so who followed that route forwards and who are interested in, I guess, learning from what other sports are doing, getting more comfortable learning from the coaching research, which has really exploded in the last, say, 15 years, certainly, um, and trying to use that to to examine their practice and to push on again within their practice. So that that was really the origin. It was was separate to the the other programs that exist, the sports psych program and the the sports performance programs. Um, And it really was less of a science program and more of an applied coaching program. So the idea here was it would help coaches to develop their practice. Is, is it almost somewhere in between the type of professional doctor, you know, the applied professional masters and the more theoretical stuff that are, are combining together? So you're still applying it while very well backed up with current evidence. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. So it wouldn't be 
to the same um, rigorous research extent as you'd have on a professional doctorate where you have to be engaging in, in that level. Um, but it would very much be taking inspiration from the research. So the, the way I think about the research is that it's distilled experience. You know, there's nothing that's new in coaching. Somebody will have been there before. Someone will have experienced that problem. And yes, you can, you can talk to your peer group, but especially with, with the way in which coaching research is, evol is evolving now, um, you can get access to the thoughts, the decisions, the mistakes, the, the reasoning of coaches who are high level in your sport, in different sports from all over the world. These wonderful case studies about not just, you know, their, their, uh, the, the microscopic details of coaching, like their, their halftime team talks or things, but actually how do they build relationships, how do they build the broader environment, the importance of philosophy, so some of these bigger aspects. But you can gain an insight into that, and it's something that will, you'll, you'll find something that will resonate with you, something which is similar to a problem, something that has been, has been bugging you, or something that you excel on. And you've decided, so one of the coaches on the program, you know, life skills has been his area of interest for quite a while, developing life skills in teenagers. And he was already doing it really well, but he wanted to take it to the next level. He wanted to be one of the best at this particular area. And so he was able to, to focus his studies on that, I say drawing from the research from, from Canada in particular, which is, is just absolutely exceptional in that area. And so that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to merge what's your coaching context, what are the issues that you face, and okay, how can we help you to get the skills to understand what you're doing to understand the research that can support you. How can we put you in a room with like-minded peers and get some sparks going? Because that is by far and away the most enjoyable part of the, the master's program. Um, and then how can we help you to measure the effectiveness of what you're doing? So if you are trying to bring about a change, well, how do you know that you've brought about a change? So our job is to, to provide those, those skills and tools to help coaches develop in areas that they identify as you know this is an area where i'm strong but want to be really strong or this is an area perhaps that i'm maybe i'm struggling in and you know wh where where can i bolster my knowledge in this area that's uh it's very uh, in uh insightful and i suppose just before we move off into i suppose more depth on on these kind of topics i think in today's day and age the word uh coach is used um quite loosely in 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 some terms but it's it's it is widely uh used in many different areas and i know you just mentioned uh d distilling um you know experience uh, as a, a trait of, of coaching but for you phil what is a coach uh if we're to just start off at that uh kind of that level what is a coach and uh i, I know we're here talking in this in the sporting kind of a realm but uh you know it it is so commonly used yeah um so you almost have you know what, what is uh what is a coach and what is coaching are kind of two separate pieces and and i was thinking about what is coaching before this but you've asked the question in a slightly different way and it's reminded me of a um one of the things i love about twitter is that people throw out questions like that and you get lots of different answers coming in and, and i have a, a post-it note on my desk inside in the office in work um and it was I had actually written down my answer to that. So a coach is somebody who uh, tries to develop uh, 
happiness and satisfaction in others through sport. And that was what I had, I had attempted to put down. So we're using sport as the medium through which we can enhance the, the experience, the life experience of somebody. And in some cases, enhancing that life experience and that feeling of satisfaction might be the, might satisfaction, be the satisfaction of high performance, high performance and, and achieving, achieving and, and pushing, pushing yourself, yourself to the absolute maximum. maximum. And whether that is in a sports competition or an adventure sport context, you know, which is, again, is a different type of definition of achievement, but we're still talking about pushing to the absolute max. Um, or it could be in a more recreational context. We could be, you know, development of happiness that comes from just the, the, the sheer joy that you can develop in a group of seven-year-olds running around in a pitch with a whole host of different bits of equipment. Um, and that's, that's a really important goal to have. So I think, I think happiness is something which is underappreciated and should be more of a focus. I think sport is something that we can use to develop happiness in people. And I, I think, think that, that happiness can be, as I say, the satisfaction that comes from, from the huge effort that you have put in and what you achieve. And it can also be the moment-to-moment -moment happiness aspect that, that comes through. So I think that, that, for me, that's what I see coaching is. You know, a coach is somebody who tries to develop the, the general level of, of happiness or life satisfaction in others using sport as the medium. How to do that? Well, that's incredibly complicated. And coaching is, again, it's something that so many people do and so many people do as a volunteer bit and they scratch the surface of it. Um, but those people who do it really well. And now I'm talking about the person who is exceptional in their work with six-year-olds, are exceptional with their work in high performance, or exceptional in their work with master's athletes, doesn't matter. The people who do that really well, um, it's fascinating to observe their, their behaviors, to observe the relationships that they form and forge and build with people, the, the environment that they create. And I really like the European sports coaching framework, which it, it kind of defines coaching as, you know, it's the instructions that, and sorry, it's your, your behaviors in training and competition. That's the top. That's underpinned by your relationship building. That's underpinned by the broader environment that you create. And that's underpinned by your core values and beliefs. So to properly understand coaching and what is coaching then, or what is a coach, it's somebody who can shape environments, somebody who builds relationships, somebody who interacts, behaves in ways and interactions with athletes in training and competition, all to achieve certain outcomes. And those outcomes are, uh, again, for me, it all comes down to, can we bring a little bit more happiness into the world? And that happiness is through keeping people participating in sport. It might be through improving performance. Um, personal development absolutely will feature in as part of that. So the, the, the Jean Cote three P's, participation, performance, personal development as an outcome. Um, yeah, so I think I've thrown a whole host of things at you there, but hopefully that gives you some, you know, some insight into my thinking that when we talk about coaching, geez, there's a lot we can talk about just in terms of what, what do we mean by coaching. And sorry to, to finish, because I know you might have people listening to this who are, who are coaching nerds like myself, who will talk about this all day long and others who are, geez, I'm a volunteer coach. I'm just coming along to, to get a little bit of information. Um, but actually even just, just thinking about a little bit of that can be so powerful for the volunteer coach as well. You don't have to understand all of it, but every little bit you understand, every little bit about how do I build relationships better or how do I enhance personal development 
or how do I shape my environment to make my coaching it easier for me to achieve my coaching goals, any little bit of that you develop as a volunteer coach enhances the experiences of the players that you're dealing with and, and then makes you more effective as a coach. I think that enhancing of experiences is one of the real key things to focus on or something I've tried to really keep there as an underpinning philosophy regardless of the context you're working with. We want to dig in a bit next to looking at coach behaviours and what coaches actually do or ideally in the research what they should do. And before we look specifically at them, is quality coaching, like is a good coach, is the sport irrelevant to a good coach? Like you come from an athletics background with the bare essentials of soccer or Gaelic football or rugby. Could you hop in with a group and deliver a decent session? Or have you seen coaches come from one sport and very easily transition to another because they have that underlying or those underlying good coaching behaviors already instilled or am I way off in thinking that so um I I I have have the pleasure of working with lots of fantastic coaches but I would I would certainly uh not jump in myself I'm the kind of person who likes to to have a bit of a, a lot more plan and to observe and to have a think about how I'm going to jump in with places um, I've heard of people with the reputation to be able to do that. So people like Rick Shuttleworth certainly has a reputation as someone who can adapt himself really well to different coaching contexts. And if you look at his track record, he's done that really well. In terms of the coach education space, Liam Morgan has that reputation as somebody who understands what the core underpinnings of coaching are. Um, and jumping back to, to what we did at Chichester, one of my favorite modules when I was at the University of Chichester with uh, novice coaches in an undergraduate program, we would have them coach unfamiliar sports. So you're a prop forward in rugby. Fantastic. Next week, you're coaching trampolining. You know nothing about it? That's the whole reason we picked it. And so we're going to try and put something which is out of your comfort zone because if, if we put you in your normal coaching context... I'm going to see you behave in the, 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 the way that you always behave, the way that's comfortable, your reflexive way of behaving. But I want to know your core coaching skills. And the core coaching skills are around communication, organization, observation, basics of intervention. These are the core coaching characteristics that are common across sports. So those are the things that we really want to, to get at. And so the module in, in Chichester was fantastic because it, it took away what's familiar to you and exposed your, your understanding of the core coaching uh, competencies. So to answer your question, I think, yes, absolutely. You know, coaching is, there, there's similarity in good coaching across, uh, across different sports. And for me, that, that, you know, thinking about this in terms of, as a communication, organization, observation, and intervention is a nice way to start looking at that. Um, I do think that historically, there's been this massive emphasis on coaches as people who intervene. So good coaching and coach behaviors, we're thinking about your, your questioning habits or something like that. So we're looking at your intervention side. But that's the last of the four I just mentioned. You know, communication is huge. It's always happening. Your verbal and non-verbal language and everything you do is sending messages. So communication underpins everything. Uh, organization, just the simple organization, the planning around sessions and how you organize activities and how you flow from one to the other. There's a huge scope for you to make your life easy or make your life more difficult in the organizational and by your organizational skills. 
uh, observation. Again, massive. The amount of time, how you observe, that's a skill. It's a skill that can be developed. But historically, I don't think we've paid enough attention to let's spend a bit more time observing and confirming that our observations are correct before we get on to the final bit, which is intervention. I think too much of the time we've jumped to the intervention in coach development as well. So those four points, I think the last two would align more closely with a knowledge of the sport. The, the observation and intervention in that you need some form of trained eye to know what you're observing. And as you said, they're probably the two that people jump to the quickest. Whereas the two before that, communication and organization realistically need absolutely minimal knowledge of the sport. And that's why sometimes you do, do see coaches cross different sports with just having good skills of both of those. I've noticed myself this year, one of the best things I've found is in planning sessions is just having a shared Google Doc with the other coaches. So around 12 o'clock every day, sometimes we might be on the phone, sometimes we might not be able to manage it, but we'll sit down, we'll plan out the session between us and just share that with the players around lunchtime for that evening. And the session just runs so much smoother. We know who's transitioned from what bit to the next. And there may not necessarily be any sports-specific stuff in there or common knowledge between people, but it just makes the organisation so much quicker. And it makes you look really good. Sorry, it, it, that makes you look really good on the pitch. It makes your on-pitch behaviors look really smooth. But it's not actually the on-pitch behaviors that are really good. It's the organizational bit that came beforehand that allows that to happen and the planning bit. And so I think that's a, that's a big bit. A lot of time we get sucked into focusing on what's the coach doing on the pitch as opposed to thinking about what's their planning prior to that what's the organization prior to that what's the relationship building prior to that what's the broader environment prior to that all of which makes it easier for you to achieve your goals effectively on the pitch so the instruction the the the, the coach behaviors that's the the uh, I, I think about so sometimes as that's the point of the spear and that's really important that that's sharp so there's good effective coach behaviors but the weight behind the spear, the spear, the shaft of the spear, the weight behind it comes from all these other elements that the organization, the relationships, the environment, that's what allows that to be effective. When looking at the four doors, and this is where we do want to touch a little bit to the actual research and evidence, and you've seen how research on coaching has grown massively in the last 15 years. What do we have currently to support the four main areas we looked at there to show that they are some of the most effective things that co- that successful or yeah successful well, I'm consciously using the word successful here because I don't want to equate it to winning but I mean effective coach is probably a better term um, are using those four main areas or are adept in those four main areas yeah so again you're right to highlight highlight you know that effective is probably a better word to use than successful because we do want to discriminate between those two you know the, the things that we think about as effective coaches doing effective coaches keep more people in the game effective coaches you know transition people through to the next level with better skill sets with better training habits um, you know so, so these are all things and and then you've got the personal development side of things again that's a characteristic of effective coaches these are all the things that we want especially when we consider that such a small minority of players will ever play or even will ever want to play i think the number of people who want to make the sacrifices necessary to perform at the highest level is actually much smaller than people appreciate i think um so you know that's a really important point you make about the definition of of effective coaches Uh, in terms of the 
the, <laughs> I'm now going to slightly contradict myself in terms of the, 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 the research that I would point to straight away in terms of thinking about this uh, is called serial winning coaches. Because unfortunately, if we want to get coaches to, uh, to listen to, to coach developers, uh, they, they don't listen to Phil Kearney. Why would they listen to Phil Kearney? They listen, if they're a rugby coach in Wales, they listen to Warren Gatlin you know, opinions on things. In Ireland, it was Joe Schmidt's endorsement of things. So, you know, the, this traditionally, it's been major feature figures within the, the sport. Stuart Lancaster now having a, a major uh, powerful influence for good, potentially. So all of these coaches have major influences for good. Um, Sergio Lara Bercial was involved in a project called Serial Winning Coaches. He's got, given some really nice... Um, presentations on it which you can find on YouTube. So again, the reason I'm, I'm highlighting this one is because it's accessible. He's written some really nice blogs on it to translate the findings for, for coaches in general. Um, and for him, it is about, you know, what, what are those characteristics that separate serially successful coaches? So those who have brought, who have a history of success with athletes and whose athletes would say, yes, that individual made a real positive contribution to my life. So it's not just the performance success, it's also the, the broader benefits. Um, and these are the, the individuals selected as serial winning coaches. Um, and there you do see that it is individuals who have a, a very clear philosophy, they have a very clear, they understand what they value, they have a very clear vision of what they want to achieve and how they want to achieve it. And their philosophy helps them, a clearly articulated philosophy helps them to do that. So that's one of their characteristics. And then you get the organizational strength as a massive aspect of their, their characteristic. The clarity and adaptability of communication is another one of the characteristics that comes through. So um, I say these are, these are the, the case studies that I like because uh, Sergio didn't just go to one or two sports. This is multiple sports across multiple regions to find examples of master coaches. And then let's think, okay, well, what is it that these master coaches do? And that's where, where some of the evidence comes from. How far back in terms of time did he go there? Like, did you go back as far as like John Wooden's era or is it more recent? No, that would be much more recent. So there's a, there's a long history. And I think John Wooden was, as far as I'm aware, one of the first studies where they did a case study of a highly successful co coach. Um, and John Wooden is a, is a fantastic example. But since then, um, Gordon Bloom in, in Canada has done multiple case studies on different, different male and female coaches in, in different sports as well. Um, I think there was a nice one on Pat Summit, basketball coach again, uh, perhaps one of the most successful uh, basketball coaches of all time as well. Her... Um, her coaching behaviors were also analyzed. But there's been a series of, of these case studies over the years. Now, it is, it is very important to bear in mind the context. So you've got to think, especially if you take someone like John Wooden. So John Wooden is famous for the amount of instruction that he's given and the nature of the instruction that he's giving within his, his sessions, which would clash a little bit with some of the current coaching coach development recommendations around being a little bit more uh, getting athletes centered a little bit more asking a few more questions of the athletes and so you've got to be very careful about lifting practice behaviors from um you know john wooden as a highly successful coach working in a really high performance context with 
the pick of high-performance athletes who were very carefully, but very strategically and very deliberately um, brought into his system of doing things, his system of coaching. So they understood what he was trying to do and what he, what he said, what that meant. Um, and so he was able to engage in this high level of instructional behavior because of the other structures he had set up around that, because of the environment, because of the expectations, because of the conversations that happened afterwards, because of the relationships he had built. If you take that and you try and bring that into a, an under-14s context, I would say forget about it because you're going to cause much more harm than good. Um, so there's an awful lot more that needs to go into interpreting you know, what, what, what is good coaching. And it depends on the context of who you have, but also it depends on that longer term. So, you know, uh, there's a system, there's a way of coaching, there's a way of interacting with athletes that is built up and athletes have gotten used to. Um, athletes have been accultured to, they've gotten used to. And, you know, you can't just parachute something in. or, or And that works for the athlete-centered bit as well. I remember from an athletics example, Jessica Ennis, um, her coach, Tony Minicello, um, had been looking at some of this um, uh, more recent shift in coach development, which emphasized asking more questions. And she turned around, which is, again, from, from Paul Knurk's work, is very familiar in a Gaelic Games context. She turned around and said, why are you asking me all these questions? You're the coach. You're supposed to know the answers. Just, I want the answers. Give me the answers. So there was a miscommunication there as to why are you doing this? And once the why we are doing this and what we're trying to achieve has been brought through, then you get an athlete who might buy into the, um, to the new, new process. Sorry, I've gone on for, for loads there, but curious to hear what your, your reaction to that is. Well, that's fun. <laughs> Just kind of sounds exactly like most of my six years when they ask me a question and I, I reply with a question like, should you not just know the answer and tell me? <laughs> Just something I want to look at briefly there. First one I want to make was actually that in an awful lot of pro sport and collegiate sport, we also do need to be mindful of the fact that there is a huge emphasis and budget that goes into recruitment and buying of players so that you do have a certain level of control as to who you are coaching in front of you. Bear in mind, the majority of volunteer coaches that are probably listening to this, you have very little control over who's actually there in front of you. So how you adapt your coaching behaviours will be quite dependent on that and we'll touch on that in a second i'm just wondering first those case studies just to dig a little bit heavier into research on this how is that research actually conducted is someone observing a coach over a period of time are they conducting interviews with the coach with their athletes or a combination of all those yeah so so the the best examples is that you have combinations okay so you're getting information from multiple sources um, actually, some of the nicest coach analysis research on this comes from the adventure sport context. There's a guy called Lowell Collins who's done some really nice case studies on um, paddle sport coaches. But the basic frame framework there is that he starts off with an initial interview with the coaches, just finding out about, you know, wh why are you coaching? What are you trying to achieve? What's your general kind of approach and why is that your, your general approach? Then there's a more specific focused, okay, what's your plan for the next session? Who's going to be here? What's your thoughts about how it's going to go and how you're going to behave within that session? So that's mapped out in advance. Then they take the camera, the audio rig is there as well, and they capture the footage of the coach in action. So we've got full video and audio. 
Um, Amy Whitehead has done some really nice work in coaching context as well on something called Think Aloud, which is sometimes a bit different. And this is something which coaches can do themselves as well. So, um, and I'll come back to why in a moment. I hope, um, but you know, Think Aloud just means you you commentate out loud what you're seeing, what your decisions are, why is that your decision during the session. So, okay, I'm, I'm watching these guys over here and the skill isn't working. They're, they're not getting it. I've got multiple mistakes from multiple people. So do you know what? I'm going to pull them in because there's something is not right here. Or I'm going to let it go because this is a new skill. So I'm just going to let it go for another couple of minutes and see today. they get it. But you just talk out loud. So you capture, you know, what are you seeing within the session? And what's your decision process like within the session? Because you'll forget all that after the session, but you can capture some of that live. It's quite interesting. But anyway, in some format, whether it's an external video and audio to capture the interactions with athletes or whether it's something like Think Aloud, we capture the, as much as we can about the coach process during the session. And then afterwards, there's a debrief. So it could be sometimes they use video stimulated. So you're watching certain clips from the session. So what happened here? What were you thinking? What was your, your reasoning here? What were your, what were your options? Why did you choose that option? Um, and this, again, ideally, if you look at Ian Sherwin's work with, with Irish coaches across a range of different sports, so Ian would be looking to do this over multiple occasions to get a, a really nice picture, a consistent picture of what the coach's behavior is. Because everyone's going to be reactionary as soon as you turn a camera on them, you know, the behaviors might change. Um, now, actually, it, it's quite interesting because sports coaching sessions especially, they are unpredictable. So, you know, as soon as, and, and cursing is a really good way of seeing it, you know, at what point in the session does the cursing start because someone's forgotten that the camera's on them and they just let rip into their, their uh, normal thought process. Um, so I think coaching, you're very involved. So I think we, we do actually get a realistic picture quite quickly with most people, um, but that can be incredibly powerful as, as a, something for the coaches to reflect back on. Um, but that is ideally how we get a, a complete picture. So what's the plan in advance? Capture your behaviors, try and capture your thought processes within, and then capture your review process afterwards. And if we can do that, then we start to build a really nice picture about what the coach is, is doing. And as I say, that's focusing very much on, on their, their behaviors in the training session or their behaviors in competition, which might be a different one to look at. Um, not studies as much, but the last couple of years, it's really nice uh, work. Um, Mason is the guy's name. I can't remember his first name from, from Australia. He has done some really nice work on in-competition behaviors. But um, again, we need to be careful there because those behaviors that you see, they're built on a foundation of relationships. They're built on a foundation of environment. And we also need to, to, to capture that. So um, there's some fantastic work by a guy called Christopher Henriksen. He's a sports psychologist from Denmark, and he has done some work on what he calls the ecology of coaching. So he's thinking about the entire system. So he would observe training sessions. He would interview coaches, interview players, interview parents, interview people from other clubs. And he would look at the documents that, co that, that um, clubs share with their coaches if they've got a coaching... Um, What's the phrase? Not agreement, but a, a kind of a, a coaching philosophy that the club has agreed to adhere to. Um, any documentation that is up on the website, he will look at all of that together and combine that to form a picture of the club. Now, he's done some wonderful work with uh, athletics clubs, sailing clubs, 
Uh, Ajax Amsterdam was one of the clubs in a soccer context. FC Ghent was another. So a whole host of different clubs have been analyzed using this holistic ecological approach. And that for me is one of the most powerful um, approaches, again, to get the big picture. So I guess when it comes to the research, we've got lots of options, whether it's, it's an intensive focus with one coach, Lowell Collins is the research example uh, that we, we've got. Um, there was a guy, Matt, with the, the IRFU, um, Matt Wilkie, who did that process really well with Irish high performance coaches, adopted something very similar. His process is excellent. So really, really big fan of what he has done for an individual coach. But also you've got Henriksen's work. This is a framework that we can use to assess the whole club or a section within the club uh, in that more holistic perspective. Um, so, and this is what we, we invite people to do on the master's program, you know, because we've got the opportunity to do that. We've got the opportunity to support them because this is a long process that you invest in. Um, now we get the coaches to, to invest in their own analysis, um, but this is something that any, any club, any coach could potentially do. The research case studies are there to guide that at the moment, which is really nice. When it comes to, say if I was to sit down and observe a coach and look at their behaviours, is there like, this isn't the right term now, but it's as close I'm going to get, a validated scale for categorising some of the behaviours, or is it almost like, you know, in thematic analysis when you're coding, are you going off like a previous version of what's been done, or are you making up your own, or is there some kind of merge together yeah. approach? So, um, at, this is the point normally where I refer to my, my typical office mate, Ian Sherwin, who is the, the, the chief knowledge head on, on this area. Um, but there are, there are loads of, of validated forms that we can use. The most famous one comes from that which was used with John Wooden, who you mentioned earlier, which is called the Arizona State Observation Instrument. You have another one called the CBAS. You've got, you know, um, uh, CASE is one with, that was developed in, in soccer in England. There's a rugby union specific one as well. So there's lots of these ones and they are very useful. Okay, as a general overview as to what you're doing as a coach, these checklists can be a very useful starting point. But I say starting point because they're, they're, they're always only conversation starters. They identify areas to then start to dig into a little bit more. They're a bit like, you know, if, if you're doing some work with undergraduate students and you get your, your feedback form at the end. That feedback form isn't a great indicator of your quality of your teaching. If there's something wrong, it'll highlight it. It's like a thermometer. The thermometer, if the th temperature is really high, something's wrong. It doesn't tell you what's wrong, but it tells you it, there's worth investigating something here. These kind of feedback forms, they're really good at raising general awareness, and they're really good at, at identifying areas to then dig into a little bit further. Um, so we'd always start off with something like, like Arizona State. It's nice and easy to use. Um, there is a five-step process to start with something like Arizona State and adapt it for your specific um, sport. Can't remember offhand the name of the paper, but I can I can ping it on afterwards. Um, so that all that process is there as well. But I say that's that should be seen as a, a general awareness raiser, which then gets you to the more interesting conversations. There's some really lovely work by Sarah Kate Miller down in New Zealand. She did her work primarily with with rowing, and she looked to see. What do rowing coaches do by way of feedback? And what do rowing coaches think they do by way of feedback? So they thought they mostly gave feedback after each uh, effort had completed. In fact, more than 50% of their feedback was while they were rowing. 
And so we've got this disconnect between the reality and the perception. And if we find that disconnect through these kind of checklists, through the, the self video analysis, that can be really useful. And there's a guy called DeMarco who's done some lovely case studies with, uh, I think the first one was with a, a, a baseball coach. And again, there's your starting point. If you've got this disconnect between perception and reality, okay, coach, I want you to go investigate. Why is that happening? What do you think it should be? Why? And let's have a discussion over the next few weeks. And just saying there, tying it back to John Wooden when we were looking at, let's bear in mind the context he's in. Let's be aware of some of the varying context that people listening may be in and how we may need to alter our coaching behaviours based on that context. If you're with Kerry Allard semi-final, potentially all Ireland final week after, you may have some behaviours in the lead up to that game as coach. If you're with your local under sixes, I'm going to assume they're looking a bit different. Is there much in the way of support, particularly working with younger age groups, six, seven, eight, maybe up to 12, to suggest what behaviours are most appropriate there? Or is it largely looking at serial winning coaches? It's very difficult to look at serial winning coaches at that very young age group because you would hope there's not a huge pile of score being kept in, in those situations. Yeah, I think you you would hope. Um, the What you would look for would absolutely change. Um, there are things like the Domain 5, which is... Um, it originally came from research on the Special Olympics and Special Olympics coaches, which is quite nice and is, is simplified a little bit. I think Leinster GA have, have uh, their project Taurus, which is the, the coach development aspect, some of the checklist aspect in that. That's really nice. That can be useful to focus in on certain aspects of behaviours. Um, and, you know, I think you would very much simplify what you're looking for. But this is all. This is all part of this. I say this five-step process that exists. So if you're if you're working with a, a researcher or a consultant on this, um, what's relevant to your context? So if you're working with children, actually the relevant bit might be, you know, how much. Uh, the, the, previously it used to be positive and negative feedback, but now we talk about change-oriented feedback. So things you need to change or get better at versus promotion-oriented feedback, things you need to do more of. So with children, how much of your feedback is promotion-oriented? How much are you finding, catching them doing things well and praising them for that? And how much are you saying, oh, we need to fix that, you need to correct that, you need to change that? What do you think, as a volunteer coach, your ratio should be between promotion feedback and change-oriented feedback? And what is your ratio between promotion and change-oriented? How much, how consistent is that ratio across different children? Are there children for whom that ratio is very different to the group average? If you don't know the answer to that, that might be a nice easy one to get a, a second coach, a parent, just to, do you know what? I want you to follow me around. And one of the coaching tools, you know, the, the traditional coaching tools are the, the whistle, um, and the stopwatch. I actually really like the, the, the nightclub clicker, you know, the, the, the little clicker you use to count people in. Now there's a coaching tool for the future. I want you to have one in your right hand, one in your left hand. I want you to follow me around. Every time I use a promotion-oriented feedback, click the right hand, change-oriented, click the left hand. Let's see what we get. Parents on the sideline, you're watching. I want you to count how many times I've, we see some pro-social behavior. So if, 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 if this is a club where we value 
good characters. We're trying to develop characters. That's in our mission statement as a club. That's what we talk about as coaches. Right. Every time you see pro-social behavior, I want you to click. Every time you see anti-social behavior, I want you to click. Or different aspects. Let, let's get some data on it. It's very easy to get that data. And let's see if we're actually living what we say we're living. So I think that's an example of how you know you as a coach, in your context, you decide what's important to you. And once you decide what's important to you, that's where the scientist bit in me comes in and goes, this is because I can't escape my scientist training. That's, you know, let's measure it. Let's see. Because so much of what we know about coaching is that what people think happens isn't what actually happens. And once we measure it, then we've got an opportunity to have conversations and to start to start changing things. And with um, positive and change-orientated uh, clickers there, Abby, you mentioned, what has this, the negative coaching uh, kind of um, maybe styles been looked at as well? Like, or would you is it would you think it prudent to include that kind of um, you know, information too, or is that kind of risking losing the interest of the uh, the coach who's helping to collect this data, or how do you how do you approach that? Because it's such an imp it does have such a big impact in like from my position uh, being an athlete on the field as well as a coach, I can see both sides, and I've been at, I've witnessed both sides or being at the receiving end of both sides, and it's just you know uh, it it. it it would for me be an area that kind of some coaches would certainly struggle to have that presented to them. So I'm just looking for your, your own thoughts on that. So, so there's two parts to that. First off, and this is a great question, Damien. The, the first off, you know, the, the language has changed away from negative feedback to change oriented feedback because anything we, we put a label negative on, well, that's bad. We don't want to do as much as that. Change-oriented feedback isn't bad as long as it's delivered in the right way. And this is the key bit. And, and some of the research from Carpentier and Maguiot has shown that actually the amount of change-oriented feedback you deliver isn't that important as long as it's delivered well. So what's the right way to deliver change-oriented feedback? Um, and it has characteristics. So if it's reasoned, if you're explaining why a change is needed, if it's empathetic, so if you're, you're uh, taking into consideration the athlete's feelings at that moment in time, is this a good time to have this conversation? Are they receptive to it right now? Um, how can I put this across in a tone of voice that will be uh, accepted? Um, if the feedback is focused on the task, so not on the person, it's that the performance could be better, not the person could be better. Um, and very definitely that it's paired with, with tips or choices on how to improve. So those are four characteristics that should be present in effective change-oriented feedback. And if those characteristics are present, and if it's delivered at the right time, then you can deliver it as much as you want. Athletes will lap it up. Players will lap it up because they see this, ah, this is how I get better, this is why you want me to get better, you care about me, you're showing me how, that's really clear. There's nothing negative about change-oriented feedback if it's delivered with those characteristics. But if those characteristics are not present, then suddenly this becomes 
more of a berating than it becomes a, a developmental experience. So that's kind of a really important point that, that kind of comes off what you said. Um, and I think you mentioned about, well, how do you do this with coaches then? Because, you know, how do you give feedback to coaches who are used to giving feedback but might, might not be ready to, to get feedback? Um, so the, the, the process that we have on the master's program, which is carefully thought out, you know, is that in the first semester, coaches bring in examples of their practice, but they've got a huge amount of choice about what aspects of their practice they bring in. They've got a lot of control over how that's done. They've got control over how they receive feedback from their peers. In the second semester, we expand that a little bit. In the third semester, we expand that a little bit more. So the, the, they, they relinquish control a little bit. Um, and because we introduce this slowly and softly, what we find is that in the second semester, coaches are wanting to go further. No, 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 I want to turn myself over. I want to open up and I want you to come in. I want you to see everything. I want you to, to focus where you want to focus because the, ex the initial experiences are so positive. So if you've got a good environment, if you build relationships, it's the same process that we're talking about with coaches developing athletes as coach developers developing coaches. If you, you uh, have the environment and the relationships established and people then share the rewards that come from sharing, the rewards in terms of the confirmation that you're getting from your peers, the ideas that you're getting from the, your peers, the assurances and the encouragement you're getting from your peers is really powerful. And it sent, sets up coaches to really want to engage further with this process. So if, if we do that you know, softly and controlled, get our environment right, focus on environments, then it allows us to do that really well. I think that's such an important point because I, I give quite a few foundation and award one coaches for GA and Camogie. And I completely understand the importance of feedback and helping people improve and identifying areas for improvement. But at foundation level, I'm also really, really conscious of let's give them as much confidence as possible to continue with their coaching journey and to identify the coach education process as something that is positive and rewarding and something they get back from. So it's part of a positive and rewarding environment. So they want to keep coming back. They want to engage with the various guidance we give them on those courses, but also encourage, yeah, um, I really enjoyed that foundation, got something from it. I was positive coming home. I'll definitely go do award one. And I find sometimes people who do foundation courses, courses are so inexperienced that any little bit of, I don't want to even say negative feedback, but just not giving them a pat on the back. It can just slightly create a little barrier or create a slight negative feeling towards coach education. Sometimes uh, it's again, obviously see the, the benefits of feedback, but I find it's a, it's a, it's a balance and an act enough to keep them on, you know, engaged positively with where we're going. Yeah, but there's a great book, and I think it was written in the context of, of coaching girls soccer in the US. It's called Catch Them Being Good. And that concept is really important, I think, for, for novice coaches. Um, because here's the thing. If, if I go to watch a novice coach, I guarantee you I'm going to find examples of them doing something really well. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm trying to find. I'm not trying to find stuff they can do better. I'm trying to find stuff they're doing really well because that's where we build from. And the difference between your, your beginner coach, a good coach, and a great coach 
is that a good coach does these good things sometimes. Um, I, I, I do a lot with the, the C's model, so you know, developing competence, confidence, connection, character, caring within a group of young athletes. So a good coach sees opportunities to develop character or to develop confidence and acts on some of them within a session. Within a, session. a great coach sees all of the options opportunities to develop uh, competence, character, connection, caring within a session and acts upon those or acts upon the ones that are appropriate to act upon. And then a master coach engineers those opportunities to develop character, engineers opportunities to develop confidence on the basis of previous session or what's happening here and, and then goes further. But it's the exact same thing. It's just the master coach, the great master coach is engineering, the great coach is doing it more often but your good coach, your typical volunteer coach, is already doing things that are really good. We just need to sometimes help them see that, help them to understand that that little bit there where you built a connection between yourself and the athlete or between that athlete and that player, that's the important stuff. You, you've just shown us that you can do it. And one of my favorite sessions is where we, we start by uh, getting every group of coaches to identify examples of where they have developed, again, one of these C's. We pile them all together and everybody walks out with a resource at the end with tens of examples from their peers as to how they do this. They all recognize they've done some of them. They have opportunities to do others and it gives them a roadmap going forward that's all based on doing more of what they already do. Sometimes when you're with a group and you get them to come up with suggestions of how various activities could have been done differently, not necessarily better or worse, just differently to suit my particular coaching style, the particular group of athletes I'm working with, whatever it may be. It's reminding them how important it is that it's not better or worse, it's just simply what suits my particular context. I also find it important when working with a group and you do begin that debrief, it's not a case of how did that go? or what did you like about that because so many people automatically go for oh well i didn't do this well or this should have been better instead i like to ask that was really really good can you remind me of some of the best bits that i think i enjoyed the most to start it off to get them focusing on the positives but that's again that's another bit you know and that's that's straight away a point of feedback and, and this is with students and with coaches as well you know the most important thing for you to work on going forwards is you're going to tell me what you did well next time because you're already stacked up with the self-critical stuff that's there's enough of that going on the most important bit for you going forward is is what you did well and there's something you said there which which comes back to this general coach behaviors and what, what are the good coach behaviors bit um, and for me, it's, it's, it's one of the most important bits in, in skill acquisition, which is, you know, coaching is, is the area I've moved into and I'm teaching and leading and teaching, but the, the research and, and my, my fundamental scientific interest is in the skill acquisition side. You know, what, what is effective skill acquisition? What are, what are the good skill acquisition practices? Used to be a question that was asked in the research. So should we be giving immediate feedback or delayed feedback? Should be using block practice or random practice? So, you know, which, which of these different techniques and tools should we be applying to enhance learning? And what we now realize or are much more explicit about is that all of these different tools, so how you use feedback, how you use questioning, how you organize your practice, 
they all influence the challenge that the athlete, the player, is experiencing. And what's most important for learning is that you get the challenge just right, the level of challenge that the athlete has experienced. If the challenge is too high, they, just, they can't take it in. There's too much going on, can't process, not going to work. If the challenge is too low, if it's too repetitive, if there's not enough of a, a challenge, it's, it's apathetic, there's, there's no learning going to happen. You've got to get the challenge just right. So what combination of feedback, practice structure and so on gets the practice just right? Well, different combinations can work. You can have one coach that's using loads of questions within a blocked practice format and the challenge is just right for the athlete. You have another coach who's not using any questions and is giving lots of immediate feedback, but it's a very random practice design and the challenge is just right. And the behaviors in the organization of the practice is completely different. So what are the right coach behaviors? Well, there are multiple ways to get the challenge just right. And if we want to assess quality coach behaviors, we need to understand, and, and I'm stealing from Andy Abraham from Leeds Beckett here, uh, unashamedly, really, really good stuff. If we want to understand quality coach behaviors, we need to understand the coach's intention. What are you trying to achieve? And why is that important to your player? We need to understand your reasoning. So what were your options? What were your options in terms of provision of feedback or structuring a practice? And why did you choose those options? And how are you going to measure your effectiveness? So intention, reasoning, and measure of effectiveness. A sophisticated coach, a high-level coach, will be able to give really nice answers to intention, reasoning, and measure of effectiveness, and it'll be all aligned. So everything will be pulling in the same direction. A novice coach or a less experienced coach or a less likely to be effective coach won't be able to join those dots up. And so therefore, some of the activities might be helpful and others might be less so. So that's, I think, possibly the most important message when it comes to, to assessing coach behaviors and understanding quality coach behaviors. There isn't one picture. We know that you look at multiple highly effective coaches and they act in different ways and they design and run sessions in different ways. It's the sophistication of their alignment between intention, reasoning, and the measurement of effectiveness that determines what a, a master level coach is and the really quality coach behaviors that you're seeing. I've often noticed that amongst inexperienced coaches. They'll see another coach that's effective or perceived as successful. They'll see an activity, a drill, a game that they use. They'll take it and try and use their own athletes. Whereas more experienced coaches are at a stage where they know where they want to get to. They've identified the final destination, whether it be the way your team wants to play, the level of mastery, the athlete's form, whatever it is. And they start working backwards from that and design activities to get them to what they have perceived as success, as opposed to just trying to fit in the particular thing they saw someone else do. And, and again, it lends us towards, you know, not so much the, the complete novice coaches, because there's, there's a little bit of, of just basic organization, basic ideas, understanding how to run a session. That's important. And there is an element of that. But when you've got a player or sorry, a coach who's looking to move up to the next level, it is eavesdropping on the thought process of these highly effective coaches. That's so valuable. 
and where do you get the opportunity for that? You know, and sometimes that those are, those are you know, um, a colleague of mine, Ed Christian, in, in the adventure sports coaching realm, he used to talk a lot about the bus conversations. Because in adventure sport, you, you get on the bus, you go someplace, you do your adventure sport, you get on the bus, you come back. So you've got time on the bus, which is opportunities to have these conversations. What were you thinking? What did you see? How did you see that? What, what, what made you aware of that? What were you thinking? What were your options? Why did you pick that one? And those are your chances to, to develop that skill. Uh, a former colleague of mine, Matt Smith, um, did lots of lovely research into leadership and captaincy. And again, he talked about cricket captains. Where did they develop their captaincy? It was sitting on the balcony with the, the captain at that time. And the captain was explaining what he was seeing, what he was thinking. And that came out from those players as a really powerful learning source uh, for their development. And I think that the same absolutely applies with, uh, with coaching. Something I'd just like to dip into as we come towards the end, because I'm conscious of time is identifying some tools that novice or even just any level of coaches can use to try and help improve their practices. You mentioned there about the clicker, how many different types of content or instruction you're given either way. One I got from Chris Cushion before was a stopwatch. And you put on that stopwatch or you set it to zero to start. You click start, every time you begin talking, you stop, get the athletes back into activity. And then over the course of the session, by stopping and starting your stopwatch, you've added up all the time you've spent talking and then, you know, take it away from the overall length of the session, whether it be an hour, an hour and 20 minutes. You can see then fairly closely how much time was spent being active versus how much time was spent standing around listening to you giving instruction. What are some other tools that you might recommend? And we might split it into stuff that might maybe help beginner coaches, but then also stuff that might be for more experienced or semi-advanced coaches who are looking to really progress on to the next level. Yeah, I think um, the, the stopwatch one is great. Uh, in, in my own coaching recently, so again, in an athletics context, obviously cross-country season, cross-country club, there's a big emphasis on how much ground can you cover. Um, and my argument is that's boring as hell if you're an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old. So but also I'm a scientist, let's remember this. So I, I could be wrong, I like data. There's a, there's a great, uh, it was on the wall of NASA, I think at one time, in God we trust, all others must bring data. So, okay, where can we get some data? I've got some kids in the group, even though they're seven years of age, they're showing up with a Fitbit. Fantastic. How many steps have we got at the start? We play our running around our various chasing games. We're not going to go more than, you know, 60 meters by 60 meters is the biggest area that I might play in if I have a longer game, but it's lots of games, lots of chasing type games. How many steps do we get? That's now a really useful indicator. Or as you say with a stopwatch, how much time in motion? And I think a really good, and again, this is seven years of age, so it doesn't matter if you're an athletics coach or if you're a, a Gaelic coach or a rugby coach or a hockey coach, you know, it's about building the fundamental movement skills, fundamental game skills of young people. So the, the broad curriculum is there. Um, how much time in motion have you got? That's that's a fantastic measure to, to have. Um, I think in terms of tools, I'll actually go back a step. And, and I think it's really important that we put the onus not so much on the individual coaches to come up with these tools, but we start talking about what can clubs put in place 
to support coaches to do this. So what are the... Yeah, that absolutely can be. Um, and when you talk about the, you know, aligning with the overall values of the club, Marco Sullivan from AIK Stockholm, he gave a talk recently and he talked about a values officer that their club had. And I went, hang on a second, this, this sounds good. Tell me what a values officer is. And basically it's somebody who wanders around the club during day, training days or days and training sessions are on and makes note of, oh, that's really good. This is, this is you know, did you realize what you're doing here? That's really bringing our values to life. Fantastic. And, and just reinforcing that because it's really important for that to be reinforced. Um, so it's, it's partly that, but partly it's, you know, what are the tricky decisions that a club coach, a club volunteer coach is faced with? So it might be things around, you know, players, I, I want you to take a player from a younger age group, play them in an older age group in replace of a player from that age group for a particular competition. So, you know, a, a relatively novice coach might be asked, you know, we'd like to do that. Well, if you've got your club coaching code of practice where the guidelines are in, written down at the start of the season and agreed upon, actually that's not going to happen because we've agreed, we think this is, this is why, that's really valuable and really supportive for the, the volunteer club coach. So the, the kind of the basic tools you've talked about, that's, that's good, but their lifetime, that lifespan is only as long as that coach is in with the club. We need to start thinking about what the club can do that will live forever in the club and not be lost when a club, uh, when a, an individual coach moves on. So things like having agreed coaching code of conduct, which is a living document, it can be reviewed and updated every year, but that is a really valuable source of support to, you know, what are those decisions that you find difficult or tricky or that you'd like guidance on? Let's get them all into our club coaching because it's a Q&A document, basically. It, it helps you in that sense. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's one aspect. Um, and it doesn't have to be a formal, you know, a formal policy type document. I love the idea, although I've never seen it, of a, a club's book of coaching stories. Because that's really valuable as well for a novice coach. Here, by the way, here are some things that might crop up. And here's just little short half page little stories. What happened, why it happened, how we dealt with it, why we think this as a club is a good way of dealing with it. So I think, you know, maybe thinking in terms, and, and the real advantage of that is that it can be specific to your context because what works for you, and let's say in a GA context, um, I've no idea how some of the big Dublin clubs do it with the enormous numbers that they've got versus a rural club. <laughs> this, these are miles apart. So we're not talking about the same uh, practices in both, but it, they could well have the same values, but how they become manifest in practice is different because of the different contexts that they have. So well, what are the, what is the, what's your club's book of stories that each you know, volunteer coach gets? Oh, by the way, you know, if you're looking for, for some inspiration, there might be something captured in there. I think we need to think more about how, how the club environment can be structured to provide support to coaches and again, part of that might be structure in the sense of, you know, we're going to rotate you. So one week in four, you're not going to be coaching, you're going to be observing. And everybody takes a turn observing one week in four because that 
gives you that opportunity to see things because and to ask questions and to have conversations which you're not going to have if you're a volunteer coach and time is potentially quite tight um yeah so there's lots of, of things people could play with but i do think in terms of coaching tools to help volunteer coaches i do think we need to start thinking more and sport ireland are doing this in fairness to um Declan O'Leary, Sheila Quinn, they've got very clear ideas that this is where they want to go. How can we help clubs support coaches better and look at club level tools to do that? As we start to wrap up, I'm just wondering if uh, you had kind of a blank page there to design a coaching course. What are some of the things you're looking to implement? And you can take it whatever direction you like, whether it be over the course of a couple of evenings or over a more long term thing doesn't need to be sport specific although if you want to take it through a sport then that's absolutely perfect um so that that's 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 not a question to to, to ask towards the end of a of a podcast you know that's that's <laughs> again it, we've got a huge one in itself and and there are people who put a lot of thought into that um so the icce has, and through leeds beckett have come up with some really nice guidelines around coach development and what that should look like in an undergraduate course um, you have actually Waterford, uh, yeah, Institute of Technology, um, have a really nice course down there. Most Technological University in Tralee have a coaching program that they're developing. So there are examples of what those, those undergraduate level courses look like. And, and, you know, uh, the reason I'm referencing those is because these are three, four year programs. It takes time. So there's the number one bit that we've got to have. It's going to take time. It takes time to raise awareness. It takes time to understand and, and just to, to, to wake up sometimes. Um, and sometimes that's not to change things. And, and this is one of the points I make on the master's program all the time. You know, we might not change your coaching, but we might confirm what you're doing. We might give you greater assurance that what you're doing is on the right path. And that's a really valuable outcome. Because if you go from, I think I'm doing the right thing to, yeah, I'm clear this is what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, that's a really positive outcome. But that does take time because it takes time and experimentation. So time is one of the characteristics I'd have. Experimentation absolutely has to be in there. Okay, I want you to go and play with this. I want you to play with these ideas and bring them back in. Bring them back in for, for peer review. And uh, you mentioned there about, you know, is it one sport, is it multiple sport? Um, I think there is enormous benefit in mixing cross-fertilization across sports. I just think, you know, the, the number of times, and the master's program has only been running two years, but I love the fact that you have coaches just sit back and go, really? You do it that way? But, but we do it this way. And, and, and you know they're gone. A spark has been lit. The fire is going to burn. They're going to interrogate as to why is that? What's your thinking? That is fantastic. And the learning that can happen with that, I say can, if they are then supported to experiment, if they are then supported to, to bring back and, and assess, you know, has this made a difference to my coaching? How do you measure the effectiveness of this? I think that's that's then really important as well. So um, there's a... <laughs> Yeah, I say it's it's too big a question to throw out, you know. But I, you know, it is it's it, it's it's about your coaching. So what's the what are the problems? What are the issues that you face in your coaching? Let's go dig into that. Uh, it's got to to require time. 
okay? Because this, you know, if we're going to make change, change takes time. If we want to assess skill acquisition 101, you want to assess if learning has occurred, whether that's athlete learning, coach learning, you've got to allow time. How much, you know, what, what do we see? What change in behavior do we see down the line, unprompted, you know, where do we measure the impact there? Um, experimentation is absolutely key. So how do you help people to experiment with this? To do that, self-awareness is going to be a really important part and developing self-awareness, mixing and sharing with other sports is a really powerful way of um, making it safe to share because we do have a lot of sports where you wouldn't share with this person down the road from you in your sport, but you would absolutely share with somebody else. That's really common. So how do we get around that? Well, we get around that by starting to share with other sports and then we will see if we can transfer that back across. Um, so I think those would be those would be some of the bits that, that come to mind straight away. And just from what you mentioned there with time and experimentation, how important it is for uh, coaches to maybe get involved with younger age groups, maybe when they're starting off or at some point in their coaching uh, career, because I suppose in across most sports once you start getting up to say under 16s uh, that age group forward to um to adult a lot of it becomes about winning this season or how much we achieve this season from yeah like a, a that success as opposed to effectiveness you know perspective there that you mentioned at the start Murph so it, it would that be a kind of a, a thing that you would encourage or is it something that you could still be like, no, you could still take it on um, towards the heading towards those competitive age groups as well? Um, I, I think well, there's a number, a number of points uh, that, that come to mind from that. Um, first of all, there's a series of books. Now, they are very American because of the context that they're in, but it's called Inside Out Coaching. And they talk about the, the high school performance in, in the United States and coaching in that context, um, which, which can look like it's, it's incredibly advanced. But within the books Inside Out Coaching, they talk about how to take that and, and, and working towards performance. There's nothing wrong with that. Working towards performance and success at a, you know, at a cup level in a school can be really healthy and can produce lots of transferable life skills and life learnings for the young people involved, if done in the right way. You know, so having setting those ambitious goals, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's the package that comes with that that's really important. Um, I think that if you want to do that really well, it is important to understand who is coming in to join your group. So who's coming in from the team below you, uh, the age group, or whether it's the, the, the junior team coming in towards the senior team. So it's really important to have a good understanding. Um, and, and this is, again, a success for any coach is, is, I don't think it's ever because of that coach. I think it's because of the broader context in which that coach finds themselves. And it's it certainly, your life as a coach will be so much easier if you understand what the coaches working with the athletes that are progressing up into your group are doing and your work is aligned with those. Maybe if you are assisting that transition, so towards the end of the previous season, you spend some time down with them until the start of the next season, there the coach comes up with you if it's, if it's a, a passing over in terms of coaches. So I think we need to think about the environment. How do we structure the environment to, to really make that work most effectively? 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question there. I kind of went off on a on a tangent a bit, but no, there 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 there's a lot there for yeah, there's a lot there for what I asked. Yeah, thank you. Just to wrap up, Phil. Are there any current research projects ongoing that you're particularly excited about? <laughs> See, this is this is the problem that I have at the moment. Uh, there, there's far too many, um, and this is so that on the master's program. I was really clear from the get go. You know, if if this is going to work for the level of coach that we want to recruit, so the, the coaches in the first year of the cohort had at least had on average about 10 years experience. In the second year of the cohort, it was on about 15 years experience. So these are all good coaches. They're all really experienced coaches. If a coach development program, a master's program is gonna work for them, it's got to be focused on their coaching. So our tagline, just to remind us of that, is your coaching, or sorry, your coaching is the curriculum. That's our tagline. That's a nice, simple way of remembering Okay, this is how we structure everything around this. So we ended up with, and I just put out a blog on the, the PES um, blog site, the, the Physical Education Sports Science Department, about some of the different program or projects. But we had one on, you know, task one on life skills. Um, we had one about halftime talks in high performance rugby union and what that looked like. Wonderful graphic been, been created in terms of some, something for coaches to reflect on around that. Um, we had things about ethnodrama in coach development. Um, I, I can see your face is, is looking interesting in that one. Yeah, I, I think, I, again, it, it's off the wall, but I think there's huge potential in stuff like that. Um, using both sides of the body in, in Gaelic football. So, you know, I have all the data now on, you know, Dublin and Kerry senior men's footballers, Cork and Dublin senior ladies football, how many times they hand passed, soloed, hopped, kicked past, shot with both sides of the body. Um, which I think is really fascinating stuff to start with. Um, uh, Louise O'Brien, really wonderful example in a gymnastics club about how do you, how do you design and deliver club-specific coach development. Um, so that's, that's five projects. I haven't mentioned the other, whatever, seven projects. Um, Richie has a fantastic one on, which I really like. Um, it's... Uh, interviewing coaches, sorry, athletes on development squads and players on development squads about, uh, they were asked to give us a report imagining that the year was 2040 and that they were at the end of their career. And I want you to tell us about the career that you've had. Now these are 16, 17 years of age, but they were asked to project forward and then describe the career that you had. Because when we get that transcript back, we see the picture that they think is going to happen. What bits of the transition to senior athletics and what it's like as a senior athlete or a senior player, what bits do they understand and are present in their stories and what bits are missing? What are the important bits that they need to know that they're not showing any awareness of and that they can then feed back to the coaches or uh, who are involved with the development squads about, you know what, their preparation seems really good here and here but there's maybe a lack of awareness here. That might be something for your, your next year's education to, to, to fit in on. So, I mean, it's, there's just too many absolutely fascinating projects. And then I've got my own research, which is concentrating on development of, of track and field athletes. Um, currently looking at um, 
several hundred thousand performances of young athletes over an 11 year period and tracking you know what, what's responsible for for those who go on and are retained in sport versus those who drop out so uh there's just at the moment far too many things going on but this is this is where i think we've got a real opportunity across uh again monster technological university in tralee waterford uh, down in CIT, uh, Ed Collin, the group's down there, doing some lovely coaching research. Dave Passmore, Anya McNamara. Um, so you've got DCU, there's UCD, there's Ulster. Um, there are pockets now. Athlone has got some really nice stuff with children and fundamental movement skills as a, as a starter. There's lots of research starting to happen around coaching in an Irish context. And I'm really excited to see over the next five years, excuse me, if that can become a little bit more aligned and we can build off the work that others are doing, that's the real challenge to make that really specific. But I'm really excited to see where some of those lines take us. And if someone were interested in potentially getting onto that master's programme, or if you want to get in contact with yourself about some research, or any follow-up points on today, how can they go about getting in contact? Yeah, so um, I will uh, always try and, and respond to people. It sometimes might take a while, depending on times of year and things are quite busy, but uh, I can always be reached uh, by email, philip.carney at ul.ie um, or at carney underscore phil on Twitter as well. You can you can catch me there. Um, and I, I say this, you know, coaching conversations are fascinating. And so this is something that... that is really important for a number of reasons. I like engaging with people because some of the ideas, some of the key research avenues that I've gone down, this this whole research line that I have around development of youth track and field athletes started with a conversation with a parent who was asking about, well, should my child have extra sessions at this point? And I said, well, here's the research from other sports that says no, but athletics is kind of simple compared to a complex team sport so it's the same apply in athletics and that sent me down that that route really productive and so um i think your know, conversations with coaches with parents is always uh, always important for me to get new ideas to confirm that what kind of things i'm researching what kind of things are on the program are things that matter to people who are out on the ground as well so uh, always always welcome those interactions phil that's been absolutely fantastic you've blown our minds away with all the various bits of information I think we can definitely go much, much deeper in a few different areas. We may look to do a follow-up with this in maybe six months to a year's time when I'd like to say, you probably like to say that you won't be as busy. You probably will be just busy with something else instead. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Really enjoying the podcast series. I think there's some loads of really nice podcasts that you've got up there. So uh, well done, guys. Looking forward to, to hearing the, the next series that come out.